Hey everyone, before we start the show, I have a quick little plug I need to throw down your ear holes, so please bear with me for one second. For those of you who's listened to this podcast and the other podcasts that Lex and I have done, you know me, Cameron James, as a film fan, as a podcaster, as a proud chode owner. But now I want to introduce you to the real me, the stand-up comedian. Uh, a bunch of you have come see me before. Uh, I was lucky enough to have a bunch of you at my show taping, but I want to have more of you come and see me live. If you're in Melbourne at all during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, you can see me performing my new hour show, Chilled Out, Fired Up, every single night during the Melbourne Comedy Festival. I'm talking from March 29 to April 22, Every single night, except for Mondays, unfortunately, I do need a day of rest. Um, Come see me live. Come see my show. It's called Chilled Out, Fired Up. It's on at 7 o'clock at the Greek Center. I chose that venue because my best friend Alexi is Greek, and I've been told he will promote me to the Greek community. (laughs) And I really can't wait for those beautiful, passionate souls to show up (laughs) at my shows and enjoy what I have to offer. I'd love you to come along too. You can buy all the tickets on a beautiful place called the internet if you Google Cameron James Comedy or Cameron James Melbourne International Comedy Festival. You'll find them. I trust you. You're smart. I'd love to have you there. Please come. Thanks, baby. And welcome to another episode of Total Reboot, a movie podcast that goes through the reboots, remakes, and ripoffs of cinema. So each fortnight, we'll be doing a pair of films an original and its direct remake, reboot, or rip off. This week, it's the original week, baby. My name is Alexi Toliopoulos, and I am one of the hosts. And I'm actually the host with the most. <laughs> I'm going to hand you over to your co-host with the co-most, Cameron James. Oh, thank you so much for having me on my own podcast, Lex. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen out there in the world, you are listening to the only podcast on the internet about movies. It's official. We've got a seal of approval. We've got that yep. verified tick. No one else is doing this shit. We're freaking tomato certified now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Honestly, let's go. Now that we're finally tomato certified, which is true, look it up. Yeah. Look, just let's just round off a few movies. Say rotten or fresh. Godfather. Fresh. Okay, you give me one. Uh, the Matrix. Extremely fresh. Okay, you give me one. Uh, Home Alone. Dude, that shit is fresh. Heck to the yek. Uh. <laughs> 
Um, how about train pulling into station? Oh, rotten. Seriously? It has aged badly. Barely scary. It's barely <laughs> scary now. Back in the day, most terrifying flick yeah. of all time. Oh, the original slasher. <laughs> the original slasher. The film that penetrated many people's dreams, one might say. Yeah. Giving them nightmares oh. on Whatever street they lived on. Whatever street they choose to live on or avenue. Whatever cobblestone road or (laughs) dirt path they lived on back in the day. This is what would haunt their dreams. Which, whoa, what a coincidence. This is a crazy coincidence that you've brought up. Dreams and nightmares and streets. Yes. This is outrageous podcasting. I mean, this is the type of shit that we studied when we studied podcasting at the university. Podcast U. Yeah, PU. Dude, we are edgy as shit. Oh, we are crashing it today. We are honestly the uh, the Cumpton of film podcasts. Yeah, we are Cumpton Abbey right now, dude. <laughs> and welcome to this podcast. Uh, if you haven't caught the tone yet, we're actually two comedians that are highly literate when it comes to the art of film. Yeah, that's exactly. We what both this made vibe short is. films, <laughs> <laughs> so we know what it's like to talk movies. Honestly, if you haven't made a short film, I don't want to hear peep on your opinions about cinema. Okay? <laughs> no, no, no. You must at least make one, two shorts. You need to you make gotta... one seven-minute short, mm-hmm. and you need to have a script in the drawer for a 15-minute short. And you have at least have to have dabbled in a short documentary project as well, so you can talk about every form of cinema, <laughs> doco and moco. Uh so we that's the kind of shit that we do on this podcast. And this week we'll be discussing a f- couple of films. Well, this this film that we're going to talk about today, it's neither a moco nor a doco. I'd describe it as a shocko. It certainly is a shocko. And the movie that we will be talking about today that sends a shock to the system <laughs> is Wes Craven's 1984 or- movie, A Nightmare on Elm Street. <sighs> Honestly, just hearing you say that sent a shiver down my spine. Whoa. How about you? Well, I said it, so I knew so it was going to happen. So it didn't really happen. scare you. No, okay, you right. say it. Okay. I'm just going to throw it into a random sentence and mm-hmm. I'll see how you feel about it. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Uh, I got the blood test results back today. It turns out um, a nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> <laughs> shiver from my... Tip to my taint. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, from the tip to the from taint. From the tip of your dick to the taint to of your my taint. Eight. <laughs> Honestly, I'm freaking out. That's scary shit, yeah. So we're going to be talking... Uh, this week, we're going to be discussing the original 1984 classic, mm. A Nightmare on Elm Street. Next week, we'll be discussing the reboot, the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I cannot wait to get to that one for reasons largely based in me wanting to bully it. But first, we need to dive deep into this original. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Let's just get straight into it. Here's a little taste of one of the spookiest flicks <laughs> in history. Keep the lights on. <laughs> I beg, I beg of you. I beg of you to stop talking. Like I beg this. of you, keep the lights on. If you get scared during listening to this trailer, just keep repeating to yourself: "It's only a movie. It's only, it's only a, a movie. movie." And please, if you're listening to this in bed, 
put your alarm on for three minutes, every three minutes, <laughs> so you don't fall asleep for too long. Dude, I could never actually uh, fall asleep that regularly because I just get, honestly, I get too you get wired pent up. when I'm in bed. <laughs> you get pent up. Yeah, I get really pent up in bed, and I, I go, I'd rather be doing something else in this bed. You've got an emotional connection to your bed. <laughs> Anyway, here's the trailer to A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984. The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy? There's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do... Don't fall asleep. From Wes Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, a new masterpiece in fantasy terror, Nightmare on Elm Street. A Nightmare on Elm Street is a 1984 American slasher film written and directed by Wes Craven about four teenagers who are stalked and killed in their dreams and thus killed in reality. By one Frederick <gasps> Kruger. Mm-hmm. Now, when you think 1980s, you think big hair. You think big hair, you think um, blazers with t-shirts underneath and yep. the sleeves of the blazer rolled up. You think Spando Ballet, you know, you think The Smiths, you think uh, Grace Jones, mm. you know. You, but- who else are you thinking? Well, I, Let's say every cultural icon of the 80s <laughs> until we get to something more relevant to what we're talking well, about. Well, the next one that springs to mind is... Bruce a, Springsteen. Yes, and the one after that is a man who was famous for his sweaters, mm. famous for his fedora, and perhaps most famous for a singular clawed glove. Mm, Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of the famous icons of the 80s wore one glove. That's true. That's true. They did. Madonna. Madonna Mia. Madonna Mia. She wore a glove. This is, of course, Freddy Krueger, who is an icon of cinema. This is his debut film, Freddy (laughs) Krueger. It stars as Freddy Krueger in the film A Nightmare on Elm Street, played by the ravishing Robert Englund. It's, um, now when you say Robert Englund, it makes me think of Austin Powers. (laughs) Robert Englund. London Englund. Yeah, Yeah, very cool stuff. Love Austin Powers. It's actually one of your favourite films. Mm -hmm. And this is another one of my favourite films I've discovered. Really? This Uh, is? No, I just really like it a lot. I, I, I think... Let's, should we just start on Freddy, or should we talk we about the origins of the film, kind of starting it, setting it in time? Mm, okay, why don't you do that, you little film historian? Well, this is a film history podcast, so we are talking about texts within time. Mm-hmm. And in the 1980s, this is very much in the early boom of the slasher genre. Mm-hmm. So I think the slasher genre really clearly starts with Halloween in mm-hmm. America. At least they've been the closest before it probably... Uh, was the a movie called Black Christmas that came out a few years before mm-hmm. that. But the boom really does begin with John Carpenter's Halloween. It continues with movies such as The Burning and Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. And in the early 80s, we're starting to see a huge slew of them. And they are shitty. A lot of them really suck. And I think this is one of the few 
that rises above it to become an icon of not just the slasher genre, but of the horror genre as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I would say Freddy becomes an icon of American popular culture beyond cinema. Yeah. So let me ask you a question about Wes Craven. So I know a little bit about him, and I know I believe it was his debut film, uh, Last House on the Left. I believe uh, was in the early seventies. Is that like pre slasher? Pre slasher, I'd say it is. Yeah. It's not even a slasher movie, but it's like a, uh, it's a. It's a shock film, right? It's a shock film. It's kind of a grubby horror film. Yeah. And then he made probably the even grubbier in 1977, uh, The Hills Have Eyes, which is kind of like that hillbilly genre uh, of horror films. So uh, I think he's he's already known as kind of like one of those cool blokes in horror. And he's like a cool... He's like an early... uh, Maybe even an influence on some other directors as well as Mm. far as like pushing gore and kind of violence on screen and stuff like that. I find it interesting then that he, by the time he gets to make a pretty, like maybe his first big mainstream success with this film, Mm. he had to reinvent the genre that maybe he helped inspire in some way. I find that really interesting because this movie, it's a slasher movie, but it is fucking absurd. It's like... It is a wacko film. Yeah, it's crazy. And I think it, I think that's what makes it so distinct is, uh, especially as a, the franchise as a whole, uh, no matter how kind of shitty or schlocky they get, they're all at least visually interesting and visually imaginative. And I think as constructs themselves, they have to kind of keep reinventing what you can do with this kind of crazy character mm. and how you can bring him into a world of new characters. Uh, they still remain quite inventive and imaginative throughout, not just in a, on a visual level as well. Yeah, okay. I think I'll talk about a little bit about the origins of this as well. Uh, so there's a little quote from Wes Craven on the film's creation about where the inspiration of the idea came from. He says, It was a series of articles in the LA Times. Three small articles about men from Southeast Asia who were from immigrant families and had died in the middle of their nightmares and the paper never correlated them never said hey we've had another story like this and so that's kind of where that the inspiration of nightmares seeping into reality kind of ah, came in. a story ripped from the headline yes that's uh really crazy i would have thought it came from I saw a dude wearing a striped sweater and a fedora, and I thought, okay, there's something. This guy's a little bit perverted in some (laughs) way. But I think, should we just talk about Freddy from now on? Because he is the icon of this film. Well, I guess I just want to say, when you were talking a little bit about the visual invention, Mm. I mean, I think mainly about the sequences in this movie uh, where, like, dreams and reality are blurring. So, it's your Freddy coming out of a wall, the Mm. walls kind of stretching with him and stuff like that. But yeah, I guess the biggest invention when you look on it is that the killer of this film actually has a personality Mm. and gets to be the lead in many ways. Oh, totally. Because you look at what the other slashes are kind of being made at this point. The two types you really have is uh, the, the killers are... Pretty much invisible. Well, in well yeah, the big icons, I guess, are Halloween and Friday the 13th. Yep. In Halloween, you do see the stalking Michael Myers figure walking around quite the a bit. The shape, as he's the called. The shape, as he's called. And still, I think, credited as up until yeah. this day, which is insane to me. Yeah. Like, even in H2O, that he's still called the fucking... Really? They call the shape. The shape. They call shape. And Friday the 13th is actually, it's all POV. You don't yeah. see the killer at all. 
So they never really develop a personality. They develop a presence. Yeah. Freddy has a personality and the guy's got one heck of a screen presence. (laughs) He's got a personality from the get-go too. It's not even like we meet him and he's a terrifying menace, but Mm. then throughout the film he gets a little bit of personality. From the second you see him on screen, he's like cracking jokes and shit. He's And uh, and they're they're delivered in a way where they are... I think could be funny on the repeat viewing, but I, I yeah. think they still hold that scariness as well. I think Freddy's still an intimidating figure. He's probably the scariest Freddy that they ever lived. Um, well, let's go through them all. Okay. Who is there? There's obviously Freddy Krugos. Yep. Uh, Freddy- Fred Weasley. Fred Weasley. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Freddy Mercury. Not scary. Not scary. Quite lovely, actually. Lovely man. Um, what's some other Freds out there? Fredo Frog. Freddo Frog. Uh, Delicious chocolate. Freddy Got Fingered? Yeah, Freddy Got Fingered. That's pretty scary. That is scary. Imagine That's scary. If not only Freddy Got Fingered, imagine Freddy Fingered you. Freddy Krueger? With one of his Freddy Fingers. Oh, I don't want to think about that, Freddy's dude. Fingers are some of the scariest creations in cinema. <laughs> uh, because it's like a normal hand, but it's got knives all over it. <laughs> I, think, I think I figured out the actual scariest Freddy in history, mm-hmm. and that is Drop Dead Fred. Drop Dead Freddy Krueger. <laughs> That would be a wonderful reimagining. If Freddy Krueger was the if was the uh, imaginary friend of someone of Heather Langenkamp, oh, perhaps. Oh, perhaps that could be a wonderful idea yeah. for a reimagining. <laughs> um, so I think Freddy he comes on the screen. The first time we really see him in my memory mm-hmm. is when he's walking up that alleyway in the dream. That is it. And yeah. then his arms, his arms extend yeah. to a comical size yeah. covering the whole alleyway. Yeah. And then not long after that, because he chases her through her backyard, you know, because I, I think I maybe only saw it for the first time about five years mm. ago. I rewatched it again for this podcast, but he, uh, he makes a joke almost straight away when he mm. chases her through the yard. And then he says something like, Hey, look at this. And he gets her attention and she turns around and then he just chops his own fingers off in front oh, of her. Yeah, he's and they that, spurt blood. That grotty, putrid green neon blood yeah, but as it's well. Like, so it's like immediately he's a show off. Yeah. And we've we've known this character for about three seconds, mm. but he's already so different to every other slasher villain that we've ever seen before. It gives him a sense of unhinged danger. Well, I don't know if I'm watching it the right way. I imagine I can't imagine what it would have been like to watch it in the 80s mm. when it's fresh. But well, because- imagine it's the same, but there's a smell of hairspray everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> My blazer sleeves are rolled up. Yep. Um, I'm I'm rocking some high top sneakers. Yep. You're pulling your Walkman headphones down, <laughs> pressing pause on that cassette. Yeah. Or I've- turning it off rather. Pausing, like I said, would be quite dangerous. Yeah, I look at what's written on my cassette. It's Huey Lewis and the News. Yeah. The latest record. Sports. I yeah. love that shit. Yeah. It's really cool. I sink into the cinema seats. Mm-hmm. I crack open a can of New Coke. Yeah. It tastes kind of sweet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the movie starts. I don't think I'm scared. I think I'm more wow. like I'm laughing straight away. But in my head, I think I'm tainted by... The legacy of Freddy. And when you say tainted, you mean tainted love. (laughs) One of the most popular songs of the era. From tip to tainted love. Uh, The legacy of Freddy is that he's like the funny villain. Yeah. So when I watch this for the first time and again this time, all I'm thinking about is that he's a comedy character who Mm. kills people. So it's very hard for me to be scared of him. 
I, I, I found him genuinely scary this time watching it. Really? Yes. Sends a shiver down my quiver. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's talk about what's scary about the guy. Like, he is a mishmash of eccentricities. He's a mishmash of green and red. <laughs> yeah, you're famously, you hate colour blocking. I love it in this. Really? You it, love his sweater? Uh, well, I it's so odd because it's ugly. <laughs> yes. But it's it's so strange to me to think um, that Freddy wears like this ugly sweater. It's a sweater it's- and a fucking fedora. And <laughs> yeah. he's the main villain. He's the main of the, villain. Like of horror. The history. entire horror history. Yeah. And he wears... His outfit is insane. Have you ever seen the movie Freddy vs. Jason? Yes. So... Um, in this movie, it stars Kelly Rowlands, and she's one of the few people to comment on Freddie's clothes. What does she say? Well, I dare not say it on this podcast. Uh, let me mean, let it be known. This is a direct quote from a film. Or it's a. <laughs> I have I know, a feeling that race is going to be evoked. Well, in what <laughs> Freddie actually says to her, mm, "I prefer dark meat." Okay. Which is weird because, Freddie, you may be a murderer, you may be a pedophile. Yeah, we don't know what. But you're racism like. is not on. That's like, that's like, <laughs> when you watch it, it's quite shocking to hear Freddie yeah, say something kind yeah. of racially toned. I don't think that's okay. It's not okay. But then later on, she quips to him, maybe I should find the direct quote because it's bad. <laughs> may the record show that Alexi is currently Googling the direct quote that former Destiny's Child singer Kelly Rowland says to fictional character Freddy Krueger in the crossover non-canon horror film Freddy vs. Jason for posterity. Um, I don't want to say the thing, so I'm just going to play a clip from the film. So one time that I believe he gets commented on. How sweet. Dark no! No! So you're the one everyone's afraid of? Tell me something. What kind of faggot runs around in a Christmas sweater? I mean, come on, get real. You're not even scary. You're not even scary. And let's talk about the butter knives. What is with the butter knives? You trying to compensate for something? Maybe coming up a little short there between the legs, Mr. Kruger. I mean, you got these teasy weezy little things, and Jason has got this big old thing. Okay. Yeah, that's um, that's that's crazy. That's that's in a movie. That's in a movie. <laughs> Kelly Rowland, oh, beloved wow. singer from Destiny's Child, calls <laughs> Freddy Krueger <laughs> a very homophobic slur. A bundle of sticks, if you will. If you will. That's crazy shit. Okay. Yeah. So she's like so that's the a, a one time that his outfit gets ever commented on. She's one of the few people brave enough to mock Frederick Krueger's outfit, and she chooses to use a slur like yeah. that. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, okay, fair enough, though. Christmas sweater, that's kind of what it is. And when you think about the mishmash of what the fuck Freddy Krueger is, it it really does make me think that Wes Craven is a fucking lunatic. Yeah. That he was like, we need him to be scary. First thing I reckon he thought of, the glove. The glove is scary. The glove is scary. It's knives. It's like... Leather. Can, it looks cool on a hand. You can imagine slashing someone up with it. Then he's gone, no, we need him to be scarier than that. I don't want him to wear a mask. And what if he's completely disfigured? Mm. He's scarred all over. That's scary. Mm. But that's not 
It's not cool. We got to make this mm. guy cool. It's the eighties. Fashion is in. Fashion's in finally. Thanks to like movies like Crocodile Dundee, hats are in. People love hats again. People and love like caps. Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. We're like, let's get a fedora for Freddie, just like Indy. <laughs> Just like India, I want a little fedodo on him. And then, okay, should we have him in like a long coat or like some black no, or something? No, too much. Why? What do you think he should That's wear? too much like um, like Humphrey Bogart. Oh. <laughs> you can't have the fedora and a coat. That's Humphrey's look. That's true. That's true. So what? how about we strip that off? But it's still chilly out there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's give him a little sweater. Yeah. And make it festive. Yeah, make it... What are your favourite colours? Well, it is the 25th of December. There's only two colours around right now. <laughs> it is odd, but I think... Um, it's th- a total eccentric decision. To, it's like throwing so much at the wall. It just shows that Freddie's a little bit askew, if you will. Yeah, He's a little he, warped sense of reality. He is a bit, he is. But I guess you know, on paper, from what I've read, Wes Craven didn't really want uh, Freddie to be funny. Mm. But... They just found it in the performance. Yeah. And that's the defining thing about the character is mm. that he's sort of like cracks wise and yeah. stuff like that. He's one of the funniest blokes in history. He's a great stand-up comedian. He's one of the greats. Oh, God, I love Freddie's special. Yeah, when you see Freddie live, yeah. I mean, it's, it's fucking next level, dude. It's next level. <laughs> and it's one of those things where you will be thinking about it all the time, even... When you go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about Freddy that made him iconic? I think I think I think it is that performance because it is I think it is a wonderful performance. Yeah. And it is such like we were saying, such a different take on that ever present threat mm. that the slasher films really base themselves on. Yeah. I think the stalking a, menace. The stalking menace, and this is someone that can get you when you're asleep, you know? That's yeah. that's a different take on the character as well because there's you you have to stay up, you can't fall asleep. He's gonna be there in your dreams, haunting your dreams. It's also interesting too that like Robert Englund's performance is almost completely you can't separate it from the character mm. they um I, from what I read like uh he wasn't really a huge star before this he'd been like a bit of a bit player I and thought he was the most famous man in Hollywood actually <laughs> and then he uh this movie made him the first like like horror matinee star mm. in a long time sort of yeah since, since the since, Carlos since, since Carlo your Lon Chaney Juniors if you yeah, will yeah it was the first time where people were really engaged with the actor playing mm. the villain yeah. in a long time and even you know so much so I read that they weren't going to cast him in the second one but then people were, went crazy for, about people this. went livid people went are you serious it's got to be Robert England. <laughs> Robert UK, as you like to call yeah, him. Yeah, Robert UK. Um, I think as well with... As far as the slasher genre lives at the moment, mm. the slasher, this is not only different in its tone, its presence, and its characterization, it's different in its structure as well. At that point in time, the slasher film had to kind of become a whodunit. Right. They really became mystery movies, uh-huh. almost like Agatha Christie films where they're trying to find out who the murderer is. Mm-hmm. Is it one of us? It has to be one of us kind of thing. Yeah, okay. And so I think to give the character such a personality from the minute, you know 
know who the killer is. Mm. There's no mystery about it. Yeah. I mean, there is a mystery. They're trying to find out, like, why. Yeah. You know who. There's no one else suspected of the murders. I think that makes it fresh, and that puts an emphasis on the character themselves as well. Having said that, those exact uh, thing, the opposite of what you just said, is the reason why I like Scream so yeah. much. Yeah. Because I like the mystery element of Scream, yeah. rather than, like, being scared of some guy in a mask. Yeah, and I, I would say the the commonality between Scream, not just it's the same director, Wes Craven, and they're both in the slasher genres, they're both reinventions of the slasher genres to fit their, their respective time period. I would say, in, in my opinion, Nightmare on Elm Street is pound for pound alongside Scream as the two most consistently good horror franchises. Yeah, you've said this to me, in private, and we have a I lot of... I woke you up in the middle of the night. I was like, Cameron, Cameron, Cameron. <laughs> we have a lot of those types of meetings where you climb in through my bedroom window, mm-hmm. a la Skeet Ulrich in Scream, <laughs> yep. and you shake me awake and you tell me your opinions on franchises. Yes. Often. I love to talk franchises. I want to be a franchisee one day. <laughs> I want to open up my own little Freddy franchise here in Sydney yeah. <laughs> where I get to make my own little dream scares yeah. for everyone to enjoy. Um, with my own kind of take my own little f- take at the menu as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think that's what often ruins a franchise when someone puts their own <laughs> spin on it. So I'd prefer it if you stick to the original recipe, please. So you told me that you bought all of them on Blu-ray. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes, of course. I'm a collector of Blu-rays. <laughs> I have one of the finest collection of Blu-ray discs in the Southern Hemisphere. Yep, and uh, you watched them all. I went. I run through the whole series last year, and I found them. Fascinating. Each one of them, not so much more than the last. <laughs> but there are a few highlights in the series. I would say one is amazing. Two is very strange. It's got this crazy, as it's well known amongst yeah. horror aficionados mm-hmm. and cigar aficionados as well, <laughs> that there is a, a very strong homoerotic subtext to it. Yeah. And the third one, Dream Warriors, is where uh, Wes Craven does come back to the franchise and kind of co-writes a screenplay. And I think that is a fantastic movie. I think that is the best in the franchise. Really? And it brings Heather Langenkamp as Nancy back again. Okay, all right. Does Freddy vs. Jason fall into this uh, box set or not? No, it does not. It's it not fell canon. out of it. It's not canon. And it's not... It is canon, but... It's I don't think it's canon for Jason. For I think it's canon for Jason because he comes back from hell. At, at the start of that movie. Freddy summons him from hell. That's cool. I love summoning... <laughs> <laughs> Any movie that has a summoning in it, I yeah. love Whenever I it. think about Hell, I go, okay, this is really cool shit. Because it's the only movie that proves that Freddy has magic beyond Dreamworld. Yeah, it's cool that he can also get in touch with the afterlife, mm. like both Heaven and Hell, and be like, I need some help. I need to call back one of history's greatest villains, Jason, Jason Voorhees. Voorhees, one yeah. of my best mates. <laughs> Um, so I is there anything else we should talk about Freddy should we talk about like him being a pederast or anything like yeah that? we should talk about that that's so, not that's a crazy thing that I think was written into the original drafts mm. was that Freddy Krueger was a you know child molester and then that got sanitized out of it I assume for- by making him a child murderer <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. most sanitary thing that I could, they could have thought of it feels like of course that was going to happen mm. if it wanted to get funding they're like oh really you want to make a really funny <laughs> cool mm. dude in a hat but he 
He was a child molester? I don't think so. Let's yeah. just... He brutally murdered kids. How about yeah. that? I think, um, I think it's a wise decision. I think it makes it less grubby in a way. It just makes it more clear, this is a bad guy, but we can have fun. I think if they had left that, instead of it being su- if it's being subtext, if it was like, you know, the actual text of the film that Freddy is a molester and molested these uh-huh. kids and then the parents all killed him, yeah. um, that's not fun. That's so fucked and scary. Alexi, funny you should say that because I have a feeling we're going to be discussing this exact thing in our in next week's episode. Time. Yes, in a week's time we will be discussing that. Um, well, we are talking about the kids, though. Let's let's move straight on to them. Okay. Um, let's talk about Nancy, number one, Heather Langenkamp. Heather Langenkamp, great lead. She's awesome in this. I think this is one of the great final girl performances in cinema, if yeah. not the great. Up there with Neve Campbell uh, in Scream and Jamie Lee Curtis yes. in Halloween. The Scream Queen herself. The Scream Queen. I would say I would, the are the four best screen queens, those three, D. Wallace uh, yeah. from Cujo yeah. and the Howling. I yeah. think though, though, that's the top four for me because I think on their own, they are all just, they're tremendous actors. Yeah. And the way that they can bring like a fear, a nuance to the fear and also when it goes beyond nuance where something is truly terrifying where they can access that that deeper primal fear yep. that's something that they all have in common that I think is just so great mm. they and they all bring like a, a wonderful personality to these characters and I think with Nancy um, it is key to tapping into this film into what I found most successful on this rewatch is that I think Nightmare on Elm Street not only one of the great horror films I think it's one of the great teen films of the 1980s well you got one of the great teen matinee idols popping around in there as well. You know who I'm talking about. Robert Englund? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was on the cover of Tiger Beat every week. Yeah, he was such a hottie. I mean, he was a... Sex symbol. Boy, was he hot. He was so hot that his freaking skin, skin melted, melted off, Skin melted off, unfortunately. Freddie had some severe burnage. I'm talking, of course, about Jonathan Depp. Jonathan Depp. Uh, you may know him uh, by stage name Johnny Depp. Uh, <laughs> you may know him by his birth name, Captain Jack Sparrow. Captain Jack Sparrow. So Johnny Depp, this is his filmic debut. Yeah, is it his first? The first thing he'd ever done, right? Well, like, he'd this li- is pretty went to high school and stuff. I mean, I'm sure he'd lived a little bit. Yeah, he'd done some stuff. Um, I think. Yeah, while we're on Johnny Depp, let's just talk about him in this film because I think he's really good in it. Yeah. Uh, he's not an actor I particularly like anymore. Mm. And this is such a wildly different performance to what we're known him for. Well, he was so young and, and vulnerable. He wasn't. He didn't have any confidence and he plays... He plays a full-on prep. Yeah, like a real preppy, yuppie, nice sort of 80s nice guy. He has these. T- he has two looks in the film. Mm. He's got one where it's like a ch- blue shirt tucked into chinos, like a very almost classic 1950s you, teenage I reckon you would have gone gaga for that look. I thought it looked great, very much an Alexi look. But he had another look that, goddamn, is a straight shoot of a look. It's when in his he, when he was nearing his death scene, mm. he's on the phone to Nancy and he's wearing these kind of powdery blue sweatpants mm-hmm. and then he's wearing a cropped jersey, <laughs> like a baseball, yeah. football jersey. That And he's just got his midriff exposed yeah. and he's got these beautiful Nike sneakers on. I think it's one of the best looks anyone's ever had in a, in a film. <laughs> and I can't imagine Johnny Depp wearing it now with his very... 
feminine hips. Yeah, I know. John, this is pre-eccentric Johnny Depp. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't mi- wear a goddamn scarf in this film. No, because he hadn't developed his persona mm. yet. Because I famously, famously, this was a film uh, in the mythology of Johnny Depp. This was something that he didn't want to be. He was a musician mm. at the time, and he accompanied his friend along to this audition, and the casting director got one look at that young Johnny Depp and said, you, get in here and read for my movie. And then he was kind of not really in the conversation for the role. Then Wes Craven's daughters saw... I think it was either Wes Craven or Rob Shea, who's the producer. Mm. Their daughters saw the pictures of Johnny, and they're like, you have to get this guy in the movie. He is stunning. And he's, I think, really good in it because it's such a sensitive character for him to play. Yeah. I think Johnny Depp does have a natural sensitivity about him mm. in his performances, maybe not in real life. Yeah. The guy is famously a butthole and one of my least favourite performers, yeah. especially in the last, like, 20 years. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I, this movie is just so odd because he's playing a real nice character. Mm. And it's there's just... no danger about him in any way. He's almost like a safety character in this film. It is really hard to watch this movie uh, knowing who Johnny Depp is because you can't help but look at someone who you know is going to be very famous mm. and, go and see the star qualities. I don't know if I'm just projecting that onto him, but I couldn't help but go, oh, this guy's clearly going to be very famous from watching it. I think similar kind of contemporaneously to this film, uh, almost a decade earlier, we had Carrie where we had Johnny Depp. Uh, and uh, yeah. Not Johnny Depp, John Travolta. <laughs> One of the other famous Jonathan Johnny's. Travolta, um, who was about to burst out as a huge star in a, sa- in a similar way to Johnny Depp himself. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like a... You look at all of these horror films and there's all these little actors that pop up in little bit parts that would go on to create like a fantastic famous career in another genre uh, where you can just find that little star quality like in The Burning you've got Jason Alexander mm. as, as a character <laughs> in it where it's just like you are drawn to him the guy has a tremendous screen presence mm. he just wasn't being tapped into in the way that would make it iconic many years later on Seinfeld, the TV show about nothing. <laughs> the show really was about nothing, wasn't it? It really was. What, friends hanging out? Pfft, that's nothing. Okay, talking about like their sex life and dating and comedy. Okay, all right. Where's the plot coming into this? Mm, well, let's talk about story okay. in this film. So, uh, well, I think this film, what I was saying was, I think this is one of the best films about adolescence that there ever was. Yeah. And uh, I think it's in every part of this film. I think the main kind of thematic idea for me about what this film is as a horror film what it taps into it's not the idea of dreams not the idea of sleep I think it taps into a world that one comes into when you become a teenager when you start uh, going through adolescence when you start kind of finding that adult world Uh, I'm talking about are you talking about the change that happens in your body I'm talking about puberty and I'm talking about um hooking up sexual awakenings sexual awakenings and when I'm talking about sexual awakenings I'm not talking about <laughs> the, the porn parody the, the porn, porn parody of, of the, uh, the Penny Marshall yeah. movie starring Robert De Niro and Robert Williams yeah which guys can get your hands on that porn parody and yes get, that is a pun hey you can get your hands on it and let me tell you you won't be able to get your hands off it <laughs> it is uh it takes a turn. It takes a turn. Sexual awakening. Once they give that medicine to Robert De Niro, which may I tell you, it's a little blue pill. Yeah, something else wakes up. I'll tell you that. Something else wakes up. He's not just a, a, a guy stuck in a wheelchair anymore. <laughs> He's pinging and ponging and pounding, baby. <laughs> 
No, sexual awakenings as in <laughs> what happens in your yeah. teenage years when you become confident as a sexual being and you begin to experiment. And mm, this I actually a- became a sexual being. This is a a common thread in the slasher, obviously. Mm. It's, like, been written about a million times. No point blabbing on about it. But I do find this movie interesting in that it kind of, like, taps into the... uh, It's the subconscious fears that Mm. are around sexual awakening and coming of age and puberty. Because, I mean, this guy, Freddy, I mean, he really can get into their heads. Mm. It's not even just... A metaphor anymore. The guy knows all yeah. their biggest fears and secrets and it's desires. Actualized. It's actualized in the film. And I think um, this is something that I think this is just the subtext in this film. But then in a the film, like it follows, leaves yeah. in that. That becomes the uber text of a film like this. Uh, in this film, we enter that world where your life becomes separate from your parents. Yeah. And I think this film is the first one to really kill that for what a teenage life is, where it's just like you are entering a world where your parents no longer understand you. You kind of start seeing your parents as real people now mm-hmm. and understanding them a little bit more while there is that kind of that generational gap where they no longer understand you. And it's kind of becomes a world of danger where you can't really seek out people older than you for help anymore. Yeah. Where you were kind of trapped in that middle ground between a child and an adult. And it's just, you feel, I think it taps into that feeling of being, while having people around you still feeling very alone and trapped. Yes. And I think that's what makes this film a tremendous film of adolescence. And I think it comes to it in the design as well, in the production design, because all the houses that they live in, they're very bland suburban houses. Mm -hmm. There's like no paintings on the walls or anything like that. They're just very, very drab, white picket fence houses. But when we enter the room, I think these are some of the best designed uh, teen bedrooms in in the 1980s Mm. because they capture that kind of... that flux of personality where you've got all these like they've got like little family pictures yeah. like why would it like they, you know that's something not that they want but they've had them in their room forever why they haven't gotten rid of them or anything yeah. they've got like kind of crappy TVs they still have like their kind of children teddy bears and toys and then uh, Nancy has like a picture of Sting and the police like a giant poster yeah. of that so it kind of captures that weird trapped feeling of moving on into and developing your own personality and curating the space around you to that personality while also still having the trappings of what you've been forced to have by your parents as mm. well and I think that is to me where I locked in. I was like, this. There is some uh, a deeper resonance for the film for me on this rewatch because of stuff like that. Um, when you talk about the relationship between parents and children, it reminded me of something that I think is the most terrifying thing for me in this genre, which is when the parents do not believe mm. their children. Yeah, that's or can't or are unable to understand what the children are mm. trying to express. Every time that happens in one of these movies where the kids are like, you don't understand, he's killing us in our dreams. And they're like, okay, all right. Oh, okay. Yeah, you, you, I think you need to sleep. Go yeah. lay down. I'm always like so anxious and yeah. I want to like squirm and scream at the screen. Listen to your children, please. I it think really, it's a real fear that it taps into. It really taps into something for me. I, I, I feel like it with everything. Also, another thing that uh, I think this movie taps into to me is... The uh, that uncanny valley nightmare world where things that uh, look normal are mm. slightly off 
and things can change, like walls can bend, or mm. all of a sudden gravity doesn't apply in your room, mm. or your bed can suck you into it. Anything that looks normal but is not, yeah. it has an insidious, like, hidden element to it, creeps the shit out of me. I think that, for me, the best one of those is the bathtub, where she's in the bath, and you see Freddy's claw kind of come up between her yeah. legs. That's terrifying. Yes. And when she goes, falls into the bathtub, is so scary. And the way they filmed that was, they filmed it in a pool, they just put like a tarp over the top, so you could see where the, see the, the outline of the yeah. bathtub would be, and they just filmed her in there. I think that is so scary. Yeah, it's awesome. It's such a great image. And it's one that I think has been ripped off a million times since then. Mm, and I think very rarely as successful as this. Uh, I'm trying to think of other times I've seen it done well. Train spotting, the mm. toilet, uh, yeah. the worst toilet in Scotland. That's pretty good. Also, Get Out did it kind mm. of recently when he fell into the couch. The and sort sunken of place. Sunk below himself. Oscar-winning film, Oscar Get Out. Oscar-winning film, Get Out, which I think is probably very much inspired by the work of Wes Craven. Yeah. So, I I mean, the imagery is really inventive and really cool. I Even re-watching it again, I don't know how fucking dumb I am, but there's a scene <laughs> Let's where, take an IQ test right now oh, and come find on, out. Dude. Oh, hang on, let me just check. Yep, IQ of 69, just as I thought. Oh, whoa. Pretty cool, actually. Pretty dope. Yeah, the bit where she's laying in bed and the sort of uh, figure of Freddy comes out of the Mm. wall and it's clearly... It looks like Lycra or something that he's kind of coming through. And then she starts to stir and he sucks back into the wall but mm. the crucifix is still on the wall. Yeah. I was kind of watching it like a little fucking film nerd and going, okay, how did they not, how did that not just fall off? Like yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't even wrap my head around how they did that practical effect. Mm. It looks great. It yeah. still looks great. I think, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll talk about one of the best, the best few moments for me in this. Okay. Because I think it's the one that truly utilizes that dream space, mm-hmm. that space of being asleep the best, uh, is when Nancy is in class and she starts nodding off. Mm. And I have, that's such a vivid memory of being in high school and just having other stuff on your mind and just being bored and taken out of the place and just having that nodding off moment in class. I remember that was a real fear for me throughout all my schooling. Even university, that you would uh, fall asleep, that I'd fall asleep and scream or something like that, and just like <laughs> just you know, or like I'd say something out loud, like I'd have a one second micro sleep and just talk out loud, and everyone would hear me and think I'm weird. <laughs> and I think that film taps into that so well when she starts hearing uh, her friend who's just been killed yeah. and seeing her in that body bag and yeah. following her up the up the school hallways because that's the first time where you're like, I don't know what space I'm in. I'm in the real world. I'm in a dream world. Yeah, I think it's the one that does it most successfully, and it's so so scary. When it starts blending those two worlds, that's when the movie gets really interesting for mm. me. Where you don't, you're not sure if you're watching a dream or not anymore, and even the characters aren't because they're so exhausting. Mm. I said to you in private, I don't know if you remember, I climbed into your window and you were asleep. I yeah. shook you awake, and I said, mm, I don't know, it doesn't ring any bells. <laughs> <laughs> I said that um, I can't when I watch this movie. I can't help but feel super uncomfortable and anxious every time I'm watching those children try to stay awake. Mm. Just that feel that feeling is very visceral to me of when you're just so exhausted but you have to keep your eyes open. Mm. I've never uh, been terrified that I was going to be stalked by a molester in my dream and killed, mm. but I have been like, you know, like when you're young and you're trying to stay up 
at a party or something, or you're trying, yeah. you want to be like the last one awake, you don't want to fall asleep, mm. or, or even driving at night, that f- like constant fear of being like, I have to keep my eyes open. Yeah. It's a really like visceral physical feeling that it's hard to express on film how painful that is, but I think this one does it quite well. Mm. Um, there's a few other things that I think maybe we should cover in this one because I think they'll directly kind of come up later on when we talk about the remake next mm. week. Um, one of the things I just want to give a little note in uh, as far as text and time goes, I think the character Tina that we start with in the film, mm-hmm. who is the first one to die at the hands... Oh. The clawed hand of Freddy Krueger. Uh, I th- saw that as like a psycho moment this time. Mm. That she's the Janet Lee of this film because she seems so uh, set up to yeah. be the lead. Yeah. And then she's taken away from us. Yeah. I think it's done quite successfully in this film because then Nancy comes so naturally to be a lead in this film. Yeah. That's a good point. That's sort of a trope, isn't it? Though? Or did, mm. Was this like at the beginning of that sort of trope? I know obviously Janet Lee from Psycho is mm. the iconic version of it, but... Was it? Uh, I think was in it something horror, that was done in other films. Uh, I think in horror, it's kind of always been present. The cold open. It's almost cold like the open. CSI. Uh, it's the same with Drew Barrymore open. in Scream yeah. as well, where but it's surely, like someone like, is set up to be the lead, yeah. but then there's taken from us to create a sense of shock, and anyone can die from now on. But was it like you know by by Scream they were directly referencing mm. these sorts of movies? Yeah. So. By this, in this point, when Nightmare came out, was it a standard trope, or would this have been a shock for an audience? Uh, to like my that? memory, I don't think it had really become a standard trope okay. yet. Uh, I th- I'm trying to think of like the big examples. I don't think it happens in Friday the Thirteenth. I think Jamie Lee no. Curtis is still the lead throughout the whole film. Same with Halloween, and I mean, literally the same actress. For Jamie both Lee of those Curtis films. isn't in Friday the Thirteenth, isn't she? No. Are you sure? Dude. Who's in Friday the 13th? No one. Kevin Bacon? Kevin Bacon. Okay. <laughs> He's, it. He's the only one that you'd know from it. Who's in the lead in Friday the 13th then? Uh, no one. There really isn't a lead. There's just a whole bunch of different people. I'm going to delete that from the episode. No, leave it in. You have to show your flaws. And I'll show my claws. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so we talked about Nancy a little bit. Maybe we should talk about the parents in this film as well. Mm. Because they are the cause of it all. They're the ones yeah. that murdered Freddy. And that's his whole revenge plot to come back and take their kids from them now. And can I say, I do like that as a plot device. I love it as a plot device. I think device it's a really film. cool idea that it's like the sins of the father are carried on to the son. Like that whole idea. These children have to suffer because their parents committed a heinous crime. I think that's a really cool element to have mm. in a movie. Yeah, I think it's really cool too, and I think it's done so successfully in this movie. Mm. Uh, John Saxon plays the father yep. of Nancy, who's also the the lieutenant police officer in mm-hmm. the town of Elm Street, or wherever mm-hmm. they live. And uh, he was like a real heartthrob uh, in the 1960s and 70s. He was one of the leads of Enter the Dragon. Really? Yeah, and the and I, I watched. There's a five hour long documentary called Never Sleep Again about the Nightmare on Elm Street series. And if you're into this franchise, it is a real must watch. It's one of the most exhaustive documentaries ever made on a film where it's just like everything is talked about. It's really fascinating. And the girls all talk about how they had a huge crush on him and it was so exciting that they were in a movie with him. Which is which strange. Girls? Uh Nancy and uh, the other the but other. But he girls was like a dad by yeah. that time. Well he was just they just thought he was very, very sexy and attractive. Really? Yeah. Isn't that strange? I think that's cool. I reckon there's hope for guys like us. He's hotter than both of us for uh, sure, though. I don't think so, dude. We're pretty hot. 
And also Ronnie Blakely plays Nancy's mother, who has like a very... She has a bigger part than I ever remembered from this film Mm. in that she's the one that's always interacting with Nancy, Mm. which is interesting because, you know, we're going to talk about a couple of movies next week where it's very much the mother and child relationship is more, even more at the center of this film. And it's so odd. She, I I don't really like her performance in this film at all, really. There's something about it that just doesn't ring of any... Resonance because she is a really good actor as well. She's uh, was Oscar nominated for Nashville. She's one of the leads in that film. Mm. Uh, just a, probably a decade before this. Is that, is that what she's from? That's what she's from Nashville, Isn't which is that interesting a because strange bit of meta. That's a strange though. bit of meta casting. <laughs> <in laughs> do, do you reckon that's deliberate? I don't know. That's I, so, insane. So she plays the the, the lead country uh, singer in Nashville. <laughs> The, doc- the movie by Robert Altman, uh, which is just one of those classic American yeah. films. And in the remake that we're going to be talking about next week, yeah. uh, Connie Britton plays yeah. the mother, mother who plays the lead country singer in the TV series Nashville, That's which really is not insane. based on the movie at all. No, but that has to be a deliberate choice, like a bit of meta casting there, I think. We'll have to have a little read into it because yeah. I think... It might just be pure coincidence, which is something that's so odd that um, I think maybe not to play my hand too early about the remake. I think that is one of the things that I found more successful in the remake. Mm. When I say one of the things is the only thing that I found more (laughs) successful about the remake. Well, uh, you know what? Why don't we sum up how we feel about this movie? I think uh, I'm just going to say I think Friday the... uh, is, I think I think Nightmare on Elm Street is one of the great horror films. Mm. I'm not the first person to say it, but this is the first time watching where I truly appreciated it as one of the actual icons of horror cinema that holds to this day. And do you think, what with all that in mind, mm-hmm. do you think it's a movie that is has any value in being remade, rebooted, or ripped off? I actually do think there is some value in remaking this film or rebooting this film or perhaps even reimagining this film mm-hmm. and definitely in ripping it off look at movies like it follows yeah they're totally ripping movies like this off but they create their own personality around it as well and i think because this film is such an icon of the genre and it ha- but it's an icon of ideas taking those ideas and interpreting them for a new age i think is something that's really fascinating and mm. i think that's it that's why it stands its test of time because it's something that's so of its era so of its age especially when i'm talking about that teen that the genre of teen films which is so prevalent in the 1980s i think that there is so much worth in taking these ideas and reinterpreting and reimagining them Cameron, do you think that there is any worth in reimagining this film or reinterpreting it in some sort of way? Well, I mean, I'm going to give a little bit of a tease for next week's mm-hmm. episode. You and I are going to be talking about uh, the first attempt to reimagine mm-hmm. the Freddy franchise, Wes Craven's film New Nightmare, which was put out in the 90s. It was mm-hmm. his return to the franchise. And I think that that is a very exciting way to take it. Mm. So I'm not going to say what the movie's about. You can look it up if you want to look it up, but we are going to be talking about it next week. Mm. And when I heard about this movie's existence a long time ago, I was instantly uh, filled with excitement Mm. at where this could go. I think it's a... and Wes Craven's new nightmare is a film nerd's treat, and it's a horror nerd's... 
<laughs> trick or treats. Uh, I, I, so next week we will be discussing uh, the 2010 reboot remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street, starring the great Oscar-nominated Jackie Earl Haley mm. as one Frederick Krueger Esquire. <laughs> and we'll also touch on Wes Craven's new nightmare as well, because so that's that something is... that's really worth discussing, I think. I think so. And I think especially when we're kind of comparing uh, with his podcast, Reboots, Remakes and Ripoffs, I think it's interesting to talk about a reimagining of something <laughs> as well. Uh, we're going to be comparing those two films, especially with this original film as well. We're going to go into our final segment right now before we get to the end of the podcast. This is our little segment called What Have You Watched? What have you seen? What have you watched? What, 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 blah, 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 blank slate. So Cameron, what have you watched that is neither remake or ripoff? <laughs> I watched a sequel last night. Uh, really? A sequel? It just popped up European on... European Gigolo. Uh, dude, yeah, which is uh, Deuce Bigolo, European Gigolo, and it was fucking sexy. <laughs> <laughs> I watched... Uh, it just popped up on Netflix, Zoolander 2. Zoolander, if Zoolander, you will. Zoolander, if you will. And I got to say, I avoided it at the time mm. because... Everyone seemed to hate it. They mm. all said it was just like a rehash of old jokes from the original, but with, you know, less energy. Uh, i got to say, it's pretty fucking funny. It's yeah. hard to go past a cast like that. Yeah. Kristen Wiig has been added to the mix. Obviously, Will Ferrell is one of the greats. Ben and Owen side mm. by side. Um, but, I will, you know, at times it does feel a little bit like a funny or die sketch that's just going on for a very long time. Mm. And it's also way meaner than the original. Yeah. But I liked how mean it was. Okay. It's really cruel towards the fashion industry. Yeah. And it's really, it's like Derek Zoolander is dumber than he was in the original, which is insane. So I kind of found it really enjoyable. I don't think it's a classic but it's definitely something you can put on and enjoy. You actually really excited me because that was a film that I avoided as well because yeah. it had such bad bars. I didn't yeah. want to burn my love for Zoolander, which is one of the great comedies of all time. I think I'm excited now because I think enough time has passed where you can just kind of watch it yeah. as its own thing and not have to worry too much about, is it going to live up to the expectation? It's already happened now. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And also, it'll remind you that Zoolander was a very dumb movie as well mm. with so many dated jokes and heaps of celebrity cameos. Yeah. It was essentially a funny or die sketch. Donald Trump is in Zoolander. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So it is really fun and really stupid. Put it on, watch it. Uh, A film that I've just watched for the first time uh, is an Australian film called The Rover, directed by David Michaud, of course, best known for Animal Kingdom. That's one that I've avoided too. Yes, because at the time it did get quite a bit of negative buzz. Mm -hmm. Uh, I watched it, uh, enough time had passed, and I... Really liked it a lot. Hmm. Dare I say, I loved it. Now, uh, you're a, famously a Robert Pattinson fan. I love Robert Pattinson. I think he's one of the best actors in the world right now. Mm. And he plays um, a character that, how do you say, is developmentally... Uh, challenged. Challenged. He, uh, and I think he does it in a way that is so not the I Am Sam mm. going too far template. Mm. I think he plays it in a very nuanced way. And I think the kind of, you see basically a bond for between him and Guy Pierce as they kind of traverse a very deserted, apocalyptic uh, outback desert. Okay. Uh, it's got a great performance by him. 
Guy Pearce is always great, and Scoot McNary always also play, has a small role in it. Mm. I think it's just a, I think it's a, a great film in the canon of apocalyptic Australian cinema, which there is a lot of in this country. <laughs> and this is takes a more art house, artful take on it. Yeah, uh, and also feels like a very bleak due date, really. <laughs> It's a very bleak, apocalyptic version of Due Date. So that's a double feature I'd love to put on someday. (laughs) Guys, thanks so much for listening to another episode of Total Reboot, the only movie podcast on the internet that specifically looks at reboots, remakes, and rip-offs in cinema history. You just listened to our part one of our Nightmare on Elm Street double episode. Our next episode, like we said, will be about Wes Craven's new Nightmare and the 2010 remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. My name is Alexis Holiopoulos, and if you want to talk to me about movies, you can talk to me at on Twitter at this is Alexi. You can talk to Cameron at I am Cameron James. And you can talk to both of us on the newly furbished at Total Reboot Pod on Twitter. <laughs> and if- I love that pause there because you really weren't sure what it was for a second. This is still a very new podcast and for us where we say, are learning thank you new for things. saying it's newly furbished. Yeah. <laughs> Why, by that I mean it is Furby themed. It has been furbished <laughs> online for you. They're Furbies based on all the characters we've discussed in our movies from Scorpion Furby to <laughs> Freddy Furby. I miss Furbies. I wish they were still cool. And uh, you talk to us on the new Twitter. I'd love to chat to you guys. Give us suggestions for movies to review, franchises that you, you mm-hmm. think have been rebooted multiple times, TV to film, film to TV. Give us anything. We're keen to chat. Reboots, baby. And you can also contact us on Facebook via Facebook Messenger or posting on our wall. We also have a new Gmail account. We are... Total Reboot at Betapods.net. And also, please give us five stars on iTunes. We're in brand new Podo here, so your support really means the world to us. Give us five stars, and while you're there, suggest some movies to us as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe a movie you'd like to see be rebooted. Oh, that's going to be something fun to do. That would be fun. Suggest some movies that you'd like to see rebooted, and we will hypothesize these reboots live on the mics. And, baby, what a way to send us out. Cameron is going to sing the song Sandman, all about sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Sandman. That's Adam Sandler doing it. I think we got it. Guys, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week with our all part two of our double part. Wait,